may be seated. Well, a couple weeks ago, we finished off our series through the beginning chapters of Genesis, and then last week I, I was out, and David Brown filled in for me, and I just want to publicly thank him for doing a wonderful job of, of preaching through the opening of uh, the book of Revelation. It was a blessing to my soul, I know, and I, I trust it was to yours as well. What we're going to do now throughout these next number of weeks, uh, I'm not sure exactly how many, uh, but we're going to be going through various psalms. It's something we've done the last couple of years during the summer, and so we're going to do that again. And today our sermon text is going to be Psalm 117. It's a psalm, if you're familiar with the Psalter, perhaps you know it's a psalm that's only two verses long. It's the shortest psalm in the Psalter. In fact, it's the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. Uh, and as we look at these two verses today, I, I want us to consider three questions. First of all, what are the people called to do by this psalm? Secondly, who exactly does the psalm call to do it? And then finally, why indeed are those people called to do it? Uh, it's not so much an, a three-point outline that's going to be one following the other following the other, but those, those three questions will kind of guide all of our discussion of this, of this psalm as we look to it. So kind of keep those in mind and, and work your way through those questions as we look at the 117th Psalm. Before we do, though, let's turn to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you this day for your word. We thank you that it is your voice speaking to us. We pray that today you would truly speak that I would not in any way get in the way of that, but that whatever words I should proclaim, they would be in line with your word, that they would shine light on your word so that my thoughts and my voice are not what are remembered, but rather your thoughts and your voice are. For your word is the word of life, is the word we need, and so we pray that you would speak clearly to us now. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God. Amen. Hear now the inspired word of God, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and for practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is the shortest chapter in the Bible. But don't mistake its brevity for unimportance. As Matthew Henry so succinctly put it, there is a great deal of gospel in this psalm. 
Or as commentator Derek Kidner put it, this tiny psalm is great in faith, and its reach is enormous. He continues, the shortest psalm proves, in fact, to be one of the most potent and one of the most seminal. After all, as the story or the saying goes, the big things often come in small packages. And so it is with today's sermon text. So rather than judge this psalm by its paucity of words, perhaps we should should look instead to its placement in the scriptures. If we took all the chapters of the Bible, this is the one that would be in the very middle of the text. And the centrality of this psalm lies not only in its positioning or its placement in the scriptures, but in the message that it communicates. For in looking at these two brief verses, we, we see a wide-ranging reach, both in terms of, in terms of the, the horizontal aspect of its reach, as well as the vertical dimension of its impact. There's an explosive power that reaches all the way from the east to the west, as well as from earth all the way into the heavens. And how typical is it of God's economy that it would be that way with such a, a short psalm, right? Because in God's economy, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The meek will inherit the earth. The way to become great is by making less of yourself. The way up is down, and the way down is up. And if the wise and learned and mature would want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, they must become like a little child. And the way in which we receive is by relinquishing that to which we cling. And so it is, this tiny psalm has such a, a big message in every way. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. It's a Hebrew parallelism. Normally, within Hebrew poetry, we see that uh, quite often. Uh, it's not too different ideas, but rather the same idea stated twice. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. That word praise, actually, is, is the, the Hebrew word hallel, which, which is one of the roots to our word hallelujah, right? It actually, hallel and the yah is Yahweh, the Lord. So praise the Lord, hallelujah. And, and that word hallel means literally to shine or to make bright or to illumine. And, and I thought back as I was kind of thinking about this idea to, to my time before I became a pastor, before I went to seminary, I worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car Company. And, and for a time I was an account executive in the leasing division, and I was really bad at it. And part of the reason I was really bad at it was I just really didn't believe in the product that I was selling. And I, I just really didn't, I had never leased a car and still haven't and really never was going to. And yet I had to convince other people that they should, right? So what this required of me was that I would 
I would tell them of all the benefits of leasing and then I'd have to kind of ignore all the negative aspects of it that kind of were cropping up in my mind. And, and it was hard because, because I kind of had to shine the light on one small aspect of it, but then leave the rest of it in darkness. But as I talk about God, I need to do no such thing. You see, what I can do in my praises of God is I just shine the light on him brightly. I shine it. I illuminate him. I put the spotlight upon him and, and allow you to see all that there is in God. No part of him needs to be hidden, for every part of him is perfect. No part of him needs to be ignored, for every part of him is beautiful. And so I praise him by shining that light upon him. What, what is it that a spotlight does? Well, it does kind of two things, doesn't it? One thing, it, they're used sometimes to draw attention, right? Just to kind of, like if you're watching a play, for instance, and a spotlight comes on, you know, you realize that's where my attention's supposed to be, right? There might be other people on the stage still, but I'm supposed to focus there. Beyond that, it doesn't just draw your attention to a specific place. It actually helps you to see the thing or the person that you're supposed to be focusing on. And so it is that our praises work in the same way. Our praises are, are intended to draw our own hearts and the hearts of others toward the God who is. And at the same time, they are to, they are to declare what is true of him so that we might see him more rightly as he truly is. You see, we're not supposed to worship just any God, not just a generic God. When we talk about worshiping God, when the Bible speaks of worshiping the Lord, it's not just saying worship some divine essence or, or worship some theological being. No, it says worship, extol, praise the Lord. And the word there is actually Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who, who we saw in Genesis charged man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's glory, who, who, the God who, who repeatedly saw man sin and yet made a way for forgiveness, a way for redemption, a way for man to be made right, even in the midst of his rebellion. The same God who called Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of his paganism, and sent him to go, that God might make of him a great nation, that God might make his name great that God might bless him and in so doing cause him to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is the God who we are to praise. This is the God who we are to extol. Well, who exactly is called to do this? Who exactly is called to to worship this covenant God of Israel. Well, it would make sense 
if it is the covenant God of Israel, and it is the Old Testament scriptures of the people of Israel, that, that it would probably be calling the people of Israel to be worshiping this covenant God, and that would make sense to us. But that is the stunning truth about what we see here. It doesn't say, praise the Lord, O Israel, extol him, you people of Abraham. No, it does not. It says, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all people. Because we are all created by the same God. We are all under his kingship. We are all his and owe him our praise. You see, the, the, many of the Jews who, who lived in Old Testament times would have thought about the idea that, that you know, we as the people of God have all these, these kosher laws, these, these, these ceremonial laws that, that separate us from everyone else, that make us different than everyone else, that make us peculiar as a people. And, and it very much would lead to the idea, you can see how it would happen, that there is us, and then there is them. And, and the us, the we, the you and me, the insiders, well, we're God's team. And then all those other people out there, oh, keep them away. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. You can see how it would be that way in their minds. There's a tendency to see people of God in this way always, whether it's the Jews in the Old Testament times or whether it's the Jewish Christians in the first century or the far too sectarian church of modern American Christianity. We all have a tendency of, of dividing things up into the us and the them. We, we have a tendency to build those walls between us, to, to have these separations Paul here goes out to all nations, all peoples, for God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the God of all peoples, whether they recognize it or not. Right? I'm, I'm from Missouri. I'm from St. Louis. We moved here about 14 years ago. Let's say I, I just decided, you know what, I think I live in Missouri still. I think this is Missouri. And furthermore, I'm going to live as a Missourian. And I've just decided I'm going to do that. I'm not going to recognize this as being anything but Missouri. And I am a Missourian, and I'm going to live as if this is Missouri. That doesn't change the fact that this is actually Michigan. Right? I mean, I can believe whatever I want, but it doesn't make it right. It's the same with God. We, we can believe that some other God is the true and living God. Or we can believe that there is no God at all. But simply believing that does not make it true. The God who is, is God. Regardless of what we believe, regardless of what we think, regardless of what we feel. And so he is the God who deserves and is owed all of our praises regardless of whether we recognize him as our God or not. It's all nations, all peoples. The word nations there is literally 
uh, goyim, the Hebrew word is Gentiles, right? It's everybody outside of the Jews. It's calling all of them, all, all peoples, literally all tribes. It's all the different people groups around. It's not just talking about all the individuals, but, but the groups of peoples all around the world. Yeah, I, I looked into this. The, there's a, an organization called the Joshua Project, and they, they study uh, miss, missiology, just the idea of, of missions. And, and, and they said that there are in the world 17,423 different people groups. And of these over 17,000 people groups, he says 7,402 of them are completely unreached with the gospel. That means within that people group, the gospel has never been presented. It has never been brought to them. So that's 42%, over 42% of the people groups in the world representing some 3 billion people have never had the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed within their people group. They've never heard that message. But that message is for them. This is part of why we commit to missions around the world. is so that we can take that message of the gospel to all these people groups, everywhere. That every corner of the world would hear the saving truth of the gospel. That salvation might be theirs as well. This has been the plan of God from, from the very beginning. The plan of him uh, of, of working out his purposes in and through Christ Jesus to bring not just Israel back to himself, but to bring the nations away from their idolatry and to worship the true and living God. Right, just two weeks ago when we finished up our sermon series in Genesis, we finished on Genesis 12, verse 3, where God promised Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that promise finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus our Lord. It finds its fulfillment in the gospel. That Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. He who was perfectly holy in every way, was murdered on a Roman cross some 2,000 years ago. And in that death, the wrath of God for the sins of his people were poured out upon him. And he absorbed that punishment in all of its righteousness so that you would not have to so that you might be made right with God. Martin Luther rightly observes concerning Psalm 117 that this is a prophecy concerning Christ. That all peoples out of all kingdoms and islands shall know Christ in his kingdom. It's exactly what Christ was pointing his apostles to in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 when he said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. 
and even more directly our unison scripture reading today, right? Romans 15, time and time again, different passages of scripture were cited by Paul in Romans 15. But did you catch verse 10? And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his peoples. And then verse 11, And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's a quote from our text today. That's verse 1 of today's text. And it's echoed again in Revelation chapter 7. Looking forward to that last day when, when there will be people gathered from every nation and every tribe and every people group and every tongue gathered around the throne of Christ Jesus worshiping him. You see, the message of the gospel is universally inclusive and in that it is there for all people. At the same time, though, we must not neglect the fact that it is radically exclusive. Right? Because Jesus, though his offer is for all people, any can take him up on it. The reality is that there is but one way to salvation. Jesus says it. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those aren't my words. Those aren't the words of church fathers. Those aren't the words of pastors and teachers. Those are the words of Jesus. He has said that. He has claimed that. Either he is speaking truthfully or he is lying to us. We must decide. So today, do you believe Jesus? Do you believe that he is the way and the truth and the life? Do you believe that there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved? Do you believe that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus? Do you believe that today? I pray that you do. Turn away from your idols. Turn away from, from all the idols that you worship, all the things you chase after, all the things that you find importance in and meaning in. Turn away from your idols, just like Abram did when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and follow the one who has paid the ultimate price for you. Follow Christ Jesus. Trust in him. In our world, there are many idols. It could be politics, it can be wealth, it can be sexuality, it can merely be the idol of self. And even in the church, we worship many of the same idols. Sometimes we worship idols that are, are good things. They are the gifts of God. But we have made them ultimate importance, right? The idol of family, or of, of marriage, or of children. These are good things. These are gifts of God. We should give great thanks for them. But when we elevate them above God, as we often do, we are idolizing them. We are loving the gift more than the giver. So we must focus our attention as this psalm calls us to do on the glory of God. For that's what the goal is. The goal of salvation, really. The goal of the gospel. It's not just to get us out of hell and into heaven. 
It is to get glory for God. It is to, to cause our hearts to sing and to proclaim his goodness. And we do that not just after we die, but now. We do it not just on Sunday mornings, but all week long. We do it not just in our religious services, but in all we do. Worship him. Glorify him. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. His steadfast love, his chesed, his, his covenant love, his unswerving, unchanging, unrelenting covenant love. Great is this covenant love. It's great. It, it literally prevails. It's the same word that actually was used in Genesis 7, talking about the floodwaters that prevailed mightily. It's also used of our transgressions in Psalm 65, but also of God's blessings in Genesis 49. And ultimately his promised love in Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Human love may wax and wane, come and go, rise and fall, but the steadfast love of the Lord and his faithfulness endure forever. And that is why we praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so it begs the question, it begs the question, if all the nations are to praise the Lord, each and every one of them, everywhere, how does that come about? Paul asked that question in Romans 10. He said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of God. So it's our job, not just my job as a pastor, but our job as the people of God to share the good news of the gospel with the nations, with the world, with every people group. And for some of you, that might mean going on a mission trip or even moving to some foreign country on the other side of the world. But for others of you, it might mean sharing the gospel with your next-door neighbor or your co-worker or your family member. For the very re real reality is, in our world today, there's all kinds of division, all kinds of different people groups, all kinds of different thoughts, and we can very truthfully minister cross-culturally, sometimes without even crossing the street. <laughs> because we live in a world that is less and less a Christian culture. We are more and more ambassadors in a foreign land. And so we should see ourselves as such. We should take that truth to all who we see, that God's glory might be made much of. So Christ breaks down barriers. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There are no good guys and bad guys. There are no, no good people who have it and people who don't. It's, it's either you are in Christ or you are not. The offer is there for everyone. 
And he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And that's really what the Lord's table is about, in large part. The idea that, that Jesus has, has torn down the dividing walls of hostility. He has torn down the dividing wall that existed between God and man. Right on that, on that vertical dimension. We were separated from God. There was nothing we could do to attain rightness with God. But in Jesus, in his death, he achieved that for us. He, he obliterated that wall of division. But he also obliterates the wall of division that exists between different people groups. Because he brings us all together that we might together be one. Different people from different backgrounds, with different experiences, and different opinions. Coming together as one body, with one spirit, worshiping one Lord and God and Savior. And in 1 Corinthians 11, that's precisely why Paul told the Corinthians that they, they weren't actually partaking of the Lord's Supper, even though they thought they were, because, because there was not love in their heart. They were not loving one another. They were not considering the whole body of Christ as they partook. We are to have the love of Christ Jesus be the hallmark of our existence if we are his followers. So as we come to the table today, let's make sure that we have love in our hearts and in our words and in our deeds. There is no better way to, to prompt ourselves to that, to spur ourselves on, to, to push ourselves towards such love than to consider the love of Christ Jesus shown for us at the cross. We love because he first loved us. And greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So it is only appropriate that before we come to the Lord's table that we together proclaim the words of the Apostles' Creed, which remind us of all that, that God has done for us, of who he is and and what he has accomplished. Remind us of the love that he has shown us in Christ Jesus. So I, I bid you to pull out your bulletins and join with me as we profess these truths together that have been professed by Christians throughout the ages. Christian, what do you believe? 